Thanks, guys. Let's pray together. Father, we come in this very beautiful place. And Lord, even though it's beautiful from the look and the touch and the feel, we sense that you're here. That powerful presence of the Holy Spirit that's really all that matters. Thank you for bringing this church through. And this building stands as a testament and a testimony to the faithfulness of God through His people. Lord, I am here these few days as much to learn as I am to teach about passion and perseverance. Stay in the course. Thank you for our pastor and his bride and his family. Thank you for this church family, Lord, that continues to hunger and thirst for that elusive revival spirit that we as Southern Baptists for so long, O oh Lord, have fasted for and prayed for and longed for, and we pray that something will begin here this week. So now, Father, break our hearts. Open up our minds that we may receive the Word. And may we be challenged, we pray and ask, in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, Amen. Out of all of the passages in the Bible, 39 books in the Old Testament, 27 books in the New Testament, I choose the exact passage that your pastor preached this morning. So evidently, either me, the pastor, or somebody else here needs to understand this text. So if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn with me tonight to the book of Luke chapter 16. And we're going to start reading in just a moment in verse 19. I've got to give you a little background about what I'm going to talk to you about tonight. I was a young preacher boy 28 years ago. And I was going to Heritage Bible College, Dr. Lee Hudson in Huntsville, Alabama. He was preaching a revival over toward my alma mater, West Limestone in rural Limestone County. And he said, if any of you students want a little bit extra credit, come and hear me preach in revival at Salem Springs Baptist Church. And so grabbed a buddy of mine and we sat on the front row. Man, Dr. Hudson was just thundering away at the devil. I mean, pounding the pulpit, spitting on everybody. I mean, we were just having a revival meeting. And right in the middle of his message, he says, and let me give you seven things that hell has the church needs. And I looked at my buddy and I said, you write down the first four, I'll write down the last three and we'll turn it into a sermon. Amen? You know, young preacher boys will do anything to get their next passage for their next sermon so that they can preach. That's been 28 years ago. So I honor Dr. Lee Hudson tonight by sharing with you a message that I preach in revivals a lot because... The church today, especially our 46,000-plus Southern Baptist churches and church-type missions, we need revival. We fuss and fight over the craziest things. The world more than likely knows us more for what we are against than who we are for. So we stand at a crossroads, if you will. So I want to give us a, seven words tonight of seven things that we find in hell in the story of Lazarus, and the rich man that our churches need. Not only your church, not only our church, not only Brother Scott's church, but, but all churches, if you will, if we would simply 
take those and apply them properly and correctly. Now these first four verses, verses 19 through 22, are more the evangelistic side of our time together. And so let's look at those first. It says that there was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, and he fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate. These first two verses, we primarily see society. We see, yes, the very rich and the very poor, but I think there's a deeper meaning here that we see those who are saved and those who are lost. Not only in your community, not only in my city of Athens, not only in Phil Campbell, but worldwide, if you will, that we are either lost and on our way to hell or we are saved and on our way to heaven. Now, in the midst of being saved, we can be out of fellowship, but not out of relationship. There have been times, being the son of Bobby and Gail Carwile, that, that I was always their son, I was always their firstborn, but I was out of fellowship with my dad. I was out of fellowship with my mom, but I was still in relationship. Maybe that's you tonight. Maybe you're giving this revival one last shot, one last chance maybe to get back in the good graces. And it's based upon your repentance. It's not that, that God is out there so far away that he can't touch us and he can't love us, but, but yet you and I have drifted far away from him. We love the beach in our family, and we just got back, but we had to wear overcoats down in Gulf Shores because it was so cold. So we didn't get to get into the ocean, but usually during the summertime, we go down, and every once in a while, I just like to get away and get on a raft and just enjoy. And you got to be careful, though, because those waves, you'll just sort of drift. You don't have to have a, a motor on your raft, it'll just sort of take you out, and Sometimes that's how we are as followers of Jesus. I told you my head was crooked, Pastor. Sometimes we just start drifting, and it's not intentional. It's, it's just, you know, one Sunday out of church turns into three. And it's not just three Sundays, it's three months. And we just sort of drift away. Now, we don't lose our salvation, but we, we lose our fellowship. And that may be where some of us are tonight, but you, you, you saw that we were having a revival at church, and so I wanted to come back, and, and maybe it's been a while. And you heard these songs. Man, that song is about being redeemed. Oh, we have been redeemed, friend. And once we are truly redeemed, you don't not be redeemed. You and I are in relationship with the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the creator of all things. So yes, there is lost people, the certain rich man, and then the saved man, there was a certain beggar. Look at verse 21, 22. Desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table, moreover the dogs came and licked his sores. No money for medicine, only the saliva from a dog's tongue. That's it. That's all he had. He didn't have one of those cars you could go to the pharmacy and just pick up anything that you needed. Absolutely not. No, dogs came and licked his sores. And then verse 22 is the great equalizer. Whether you're very rich or very poor or very saved or very lost, death is coming. Death is coming. I was spring break with my family and we had two losses in our church while I was gone. Our, our church is an aging church. 
We're about to celebrate our 197th year, and we still have some of the original members. Amen? <laughs> and how, how they love Jesus, but death sort of helps us all to understand that we're mortal. We're not always going to be here as such, but yet we find this recorded in the Word that the beggar died and was carried by angels into Abraham's bosom. Then in almost an afterthought, it says the rich man also died and was buried. And was buried. When I think about preaching funerals, it always troubles me when the first call that I get from the family is, Joel, we don't know if he or she was saved or not. Now my first question is, did you ever share the gospel with them? Did you ever talk to them about spiritual things? Did you talk to them about heaven? Did you talk to them about hell? And, and usually in the midst of that conversation, I get to find out some background about what's been going on in their lives or in their families. Maybe tonight, we are the beggar. And if we happen to pass from this walk of life before this night is done, we would be in heaven and Pastor Sammy would stand over your graveside somewhere and he could tell the family, your loved one knew Jesus and he or she is at home in heaven. But you know what? A lot of families don't get to do that. Sometimes we have everything on this side of heaven except the right thing, and that's a relationship with Christ. And we, like the rich man, die and are buried. But in verse 23, it gives us a little glimpse of what happens to an individual who does not know Jesus Christ as their Savior. Where does that individual wind up? The Bible says, And being in torment in Hades... In hell, King James Version, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. I want you to pay close attention that he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham. The first thing that hell has that our churches need today is vision. We need some vision. And I look around and see what happened to your church just a few years ago and then what has been built back. You guys have vision. First Baptist Church of Athens could take a lesson. I'm sure that there are churches all around in our associations in our North Alabama, South Central Tennessee area, as well as in the Central Alabama, could come here and they could sit at your feet and learn about having a vision when your backs are against the proverbial wall and you have nowhere else to turn. No house of worship to worship in. Your pastor was showing me some of the pictures right after the disaster. Meeting out in the parking lot. Some of the things that you guys were able to do. The Bible says in the book of Proverbs chapter 29, where there is no vision, the people perish. Many of our churches today are dead and dying because there is a lack of vision. So what must we do? We need to have a vision for our individual lives. We need to look in that proverbial spiritual mirror and say, Lord, what's the vision for my, for my life? What is my dream? I remember when I was a little boy, I wanted to be a meteorologist. My hero is H.D. Bagley, Channel 19. Some of you are old enough to remember H.D. Bagley. Just a quick story on the side note here. There's a little golf course in Hazel Green called Fox Run. I was pastoring over in Lickskillet, over in Hazel Green, and I decided I wanted to get away and play me a quick nine holes so I didn't go out and shoot somebody. And, you know, sometimes we as pastors just have to get away sometimes, and it's just important to do that. And I walk into the clubhouse, and the guy says, well, there's a single out there. Just go ahead and, and play with him if you'd like to. I walked up, and it was my hero, H.D. Bagley. He was actually a deacon at a Baptist church over in Huntsville, and he and I got to play nine holes together. He's at home with the Lord now. But I, 
I got to talking to him about when I was a little boy, I wanted to be a weatherman. I wanted to warn people and let them know that there was a, a, a tornado coming or there was a, 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 a thunderstorm coming. I wanted to do that. And he looked at me and said, Son, but the Lord's allowing you now to warn people about something much greater. Oh, and he spoke into my life. But I didn't turn out to be a meteorologist. I just turned out to be an old Baptist preacher that can't keep his microphone on. And sometimes I look back over the course of my life and I, I said, Lord, this is what I was born to do. This is what I was called to do. And I've, I've tried to do other things. I worked at Steelcase. I built office furniture. I was a supervisor. I was in mid-management. I did all that and I was not very good. But yet the Lord had called me to preach when I was 17. But I ran from God. You ever ran from God? When he's trying to put his vision inside of you and you're saying, but Lord, I'm not ready. I ran for seven years. There may be someone here tonight and you're running. Let me just go ahead and learn from my mistakes. That's what a wise person does. We learn from someone else's mistake. And tonight you need to say, okay, Lord, here I am, send me. Like Isaiah finally said, here I am, Lord, send me. Would you be willing to do that tonight? Look at verse 24. The Bible says, then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am tormented in this flame. The third word there, cried. Where are the tears in our churches today? Hell has tears, but the church doesn't have tears. I wonder why. We build these beautiful edifices and you have a beautiful facility here. But something happened to me early on. We built a building when I was at First Union Baptist Church. And it was a little building on Fifth Avenue and Horton Street, and we had people lining Fifth Avenue, and they were parking over in ballparks, and our church was just blowing up, and people, we couldn't get them all in there, and the fire marshal came in one day and said, you can't put all these people in here. Then he got saved, and he led us, amen. And, man, we were just having all kinds of things going, so we decided we needed to build a new building. And I had to keep reminding them that the same Holy Ghost that moved in the building over here at Fifth Avenue and Horton Street will move in that new building. But one thing that we did that I don't think you've done, we lost our tears. We had tear-stained altars. We decided not to carpet over them because there were literal water stains in the wood. But boy, we built that new building. We put that fancy carpet down. You couldn't see the tear stains anymore, and we lost our tears. And in the midst of losing our tears, we lost our vision. And sometimes when you don't have a broken heart about the lost anymore, when you don't have a broken heart about your family, when you don't have a broken heart about that person who is closest to you, that you know that if they die tonight, they'd split hell wide open. Oh, we need tears. They're, they're, they're weeping in hell tonight. We need to be weeping in our churches. At the end of verse 24, it says, For I am tormented in this flame. There's fire in hell. There needs to be fire in our churches. Sometimes we as bad. I'm just going to use this one, guys. I've just tore this one completely up. I didn't mean to. But I'm telling you, we are, we are living in a day that we are so afraid of Pentecostal fire and the fire of God coming down that we have no fire at all. And our churches are dead. And our churches are dying because of it. There's a millennial generation out there that, that want to be able to come into a house of worship and feel something. Not deadness, not staleness, not how we've been always doing it for the last 150 years. 
but saying, I want something vibrant that is relevant to where I am right now. And so my, my passion in this 28th year of ministry for me is, God, rekindle the fire. I, I go back sometimes. Do y'all know what an audio cassette is, you young people? Do y'all even know what I'm talking about? Okay. Moms and dads, we know. And eight tracks. Anybody remember eight tracks? Of course you do. Listen, they used to, they, they videoed or would audio me and put me on cassette tape. And I found a bunch of those. And I, somewhere in all of our boxes that we've moved from Louisville back home, I, I was able to find. And, Brother Scott, i got to tell you, that there, there's a, there was a different fire a few years ago inside of me. And I don't know, as you maybe get a little bit more education or uh, you, you, you start preaching at conferences and doing things. And you have a tendency just to lose your fire. And, until, and unless you're stoking the fire, your fire will eventually go out. So what do we as believers do? We, we have revivals. We have singings. We, we, we have times of celebration. But if you're not putting kindling on your fire, your fire will go out. Again, you don't lose your salvation, you just lose your joy. And some of us, because you've been through so much, sometimes we lose our fire. And, and, and communities lose their fire. Sometimes entire cities and counties, they lose their fire. Why? Because there's no vision. And when there's no vision, the people perish. Why? Because they've lost their tears. And when they lose their tears, they lose their fire and they lose their passion. I tell folks sometimes that I was either going to be a ball coach or a preacher because I think they're almost one and the same. My son Zeke is 11 now, and I'm an assistant baseball coach for the 10 and 11-year-old Cardinals in Athens, Alabama. When I first got back to First Baptist last year, they said, Joel, would you, would you help me coach? And, and it's actually the, the golf pro at Cambrake, Brother Mickey Wolf. He's a member over at Lindsay Lane with Brother Dusty McLemore. And, and I said, sure, and I'll never forget. I'm so excited about my first game. I'm going to be coaching first base. And my wife, Jo, looks at me and says, you need to behave. <laughs> what do you mean behave? I'm only on first base. She says, I know you. And those umpires, you are a catcher. You think you know everything. So you need to be careful of what you say. And, and, and I actually went into the, into the first base uh, coaching box, and I, and I was almost scared to say anything. Because I knew that a lot of my members were sitting up there. And then I said, you know what? I'm just going to do it like I preach. I'm just going to have fire. And I, I called it out. I said, you got a kid that, that, that wasn't a striker. Are you kidding me? And the umpire looked at me and went, mm-mm. We don't, uh-uh. But you see, some of us have allowed the devil to look at us and go, uh-uh. You can't worship that way. You can't preach that way. You can't sing that way. Don't you do that. I don't see that in the rule book. We need to have a holy fire, a fire that is kindled in our churches by the preaching and the proclamation of God's word as well as our worship. Look at verse 25. But Abraham said, son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted and you are tormented. The fourth thing that hell has that the church needs is we need to remember. Sometimes we forget what it was like to be lost. Now, I got saved when I was eight years old. The worst thing I'd done, pull my sister's hair or something, okay? But my mama had prayed for me. She said, I came out of the womb giving orders. And she looked up to the heavens one night, and she tells me this story. She says, Lord, he's either going to lead a whole lot of people to heaven or a whole lot of people to hell. Save him fast. So I think I was the recipient of prayers of my mother that at eight years of age I got born again. And I'm so grateful and thankful. There's no telling where I'd be tonight. 
But I need to remember what it's like to be lost. Now, it's hard for me to remember what I ate for breakfast yesterday, much less remembering all the way back to then. But what God has given me a glimpse of is people in my family before Jesus, then after Jesus. We need to remember. And if you and I will remember that, God will stir something up on the inside of us. He'll, he'll say, now, Joel, do, do you remember how that person used to be before they were saved? And one of those is my dad. You remember your dad's mouth? You remember his language? You, you remember Bobby Carwell before he got saved? And then now you see him after? I said, yes, Lord. Oh, we need to remember. Oh, there's remembrance in hell. I, I believe that part of the penalty of hell is that individuals remember every sermon they heard that they didn't respond. Every song that was being sung during an invitation, that first, second, and last stanza of amazing grace, or just as I am, or whatever song that was being sung. And they says, no. Maybe next week. Maybe next month. Maybe when I get older. Maybe when I reach the age of accountability. Maybe this. Maybe that. And they waited too long. That may be part of the penalty of hell. Because they remember. Look at verse 26. The Bible says, and besides all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf that is fixed so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. Separation. Once you're in hell, you can't get a get-out-of-hell-free card. You are there, and your only reprieve is being thrown into the lake of fire, according to the book of Revelation. And it's not a reprieve. It's worse. To be eternally separated from a holy God. I think today that we are to be separate from sin, but we are to be co-laborers and lovers of sinners. That means that I need to have some lost friends. Now, I'll just be honest with you. I got caught up, as most preachers do, that my only circle of friends were other believers. It's hard to tell lost people one-on-one -on -one and have gospel conversations when everybody you know is saved. So I go to the gym, and I wear my Jesus t-shirt, and people bother me on the elliptical machine. They bother me when I'm on the treadmill. It is amazing to me. It's like throwing a lure out in the water, and it's full of bass. It, it never ceases to amaze me because people are asking questions today. There's a whole lot of things going on on the front pages, prophecy-wise, there's a whole lot of things going on. And, and, and people, if, if you claim to be a man or a woman of God, and you, you, you claim to maybe know a little bit about the Bible, people are going to ask. Now, I'm not going to tell you that at the tricep machine somebody got saved. I, I'm not going there. But what is happening is I'm having gospel conversations with pagans now, with people who are lost. Why? Because I'm supposed to. That we who are followers of Jesus are to go you therefore and make disciples of all the nations and preach the gospel to every creature. i got to be honest with you. Some of the people I'm talking to, they're a creature. But what happens is when you get saved, you become a creature with a new feature. Amen? Because I'm one of those that was changed. Many of you here tonight, you were one of those who at one time lost and on your way to hell and now you've been born again. You have been washed in the blood of Jesus. Yes, be separate from sin, but love people. Please don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I don't think you've got to go out and party with folks and act a fool to win the fool. 
I do think, though, that you can be a rock for Jesus in the midst of craziness and turmoil and disaster and trouble and struggle. And they can say, why are you still that way? Why I'm over here losing control. One name, his name is Jesus. That's the reason why I'm able to do it. Nothing good inside of me. The Bible says that there is none righteous, no, not one. Listen, I'll, I'm going to be honest with you. All week long, you're going to learn this about me. There's nothing good in Joel except Jesus. There is nothing good inside of me except Jesus. Because Joel without Jesus is on his way to hell. But Joel with Jesus, I'm already there. I'm already in heaven. I get to taste a little bit, bit of it here. That then one day face to face, I'll no longer see through a glass that is darkened. But face to face, I will be with my Lord. Look at verse 27. Then he said, I beg you. The King James Version vernacular is, I pray you, therefore, Father, that you would send him to my Father's house. The sixth thing that hell has that the church needs is prayer. We do everything but pray in our church. We sing a whole lot. We preach a whole lot. We pray a little. But if you'll look across the landscape of Christendom today, the churches that are really blowing and going, they spend a whole lot of time in prayer. Prayer meetings in the morning, prayer meetings in the noontime, prayer meetings at night, all night prayer meetings, 24-hour prayer meetings, praying over pews, praying over chairs, praying over pulpits, praying over the entire property. Prayer, 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 prayer. I think it was Spurgeon or D.L. Moody one who said, I would rather teach one man to pray than ten men to preach. If I could really get some prayer warriors crying out to God. And I do believe it was Spurgeon that they asked him where his power came from at the great metropolitan church. He said, let me tell you where my power comes from. That down in the basement right now, that there are hundreds and hundreds of people on their face praying while I preach. Oh, there's prayer meetings going on in hell. They still think there's hope. They still think that they're going to get out of it. They're not. You and I tonight, because you're under the sound of my voice, you still have hope. There's still a chance. There's still an opportunity for you to say yes to the gospel of Jesus Christ. My dad got saved because my mama prayed. I love to tell that story because my mama had a legitimate concern, which leads us to our last point tonight, verse 28. For I have five brothers that he may testify to them lest they also come to this place of torment. Where, where's our concern today in the church? We wind up fussing and fighting over our preferences and what we want and what we've got to have rather than weeping and praying and having concern over lost folks. And, and, and I believe that, that God is, is judging the church as a whole today because of our lack of concern. Well, my, my mom married my dad knowing my dad was lost. And I do not encourage those kind of relationships even today when I do premarital counseling. I, I, I try to win one or both to Jesus if they do not know the Lord. I, I try not to yoke up a donkey and a thoroughbred. Amen. I try to make sure that both of them know Jesus Christ as their Savior. But where is the concern? And my mom looked at my dad and says, Bobby, I, I'm going to love you regardless, but you need to be saved. My, my mother prayed for my daddy 25 years. Doesn't make sense. People don't they don't last that long today, especially if they're unequally yoked. But my mom prayed and prayed and prayed. I tell everybody, my mom lived it. I get to tell a story. And maybe tonight you're here and 
your spouse is not here. Maybe you're here tonight as a husband and wife and your children aren't here. Maybe you raised them up in church, but they've flown the coop and they're doing their own thing now. And I just encourage you to stand on God's word that you train up a child in the way that they should go. And when they're old, they won't depart from it. Now, there is usually a gap of time there where they'll go do their own thing. They'll have to spread their own wings, try to find their own place. But if you've raised them up and trained them up, praise God, hopefully the Bible is true and they, they will come back home. I truly believe that. My dad was on his way to hell, and I couldn't have, hardly stand it. And I was in my first church at New Grove Baptist Church in Blanche, Tennessee. And Brother Scott, I was preaching, and every Sunday people would come forward and get saved. But none of them were my daddy. And it was beginning to trouble me, and it troubled me to a point that I remember one night on a Wednesday night during our prayer meeting, I asked our deacons, I said, guys, I want you to pray over me because I'm going to go to the house tonight, and I'm going to tell my daddy about Jesus again, but I... I want him to know Christ, and, and I just need God to give me the exact words that I need to say and when I need to say it because I don't want to come on too strong and push him away, but I don't want to be lazy and lag behind and let him not hear the truth. So those three men prayed over me. I got to the house that night and rang the doorbell. My mom comes to the door and says, Joel, it's 9 o'clock. What are you doing here? And I said, I, I want to come witness to Daddy again. And she said, well, I'll start praying. And my mom goes and Bedroom starts praying. My dad and I start small talking things. And I says, Daddy, I, I didn't come to talk about the Braves. I didn't come to talk about the weather. I didn't come to talk. I just need to ask you a question. He said, well, what is it, son? I said, Daddy, if you died tonight, where would you spend eternity? So much for the soft sale. Amen. He says, Joel, you and I have talked about this. I said, yeah, Daddy, we've talked about it, but you haven't given me a clear answer. And in the midst of the conversation, he looks at me and says, but I believe in God. I said, the devils believe in God, and they tremble at his very name. Believing in God's not enough. Believing the big guy upstairs is not enough. I have some of our young people at First Baptist who are asking me questions about some of their heroes, some of their rock stars, some of their uh, athletes that they really look up to who will stand in front of a crowd of people that accept a trophy and say, I want to thank God. I, I said, thanking God is wonderful, but just because you thank God don't mean that you know Jesus. We can ask the Pharisees about that. They, they believed in God, but they just rejected the Messiah. Now that really upset my dad. And I've learned something about being a dad. As a son, Zeke to me now, just like I was to my dad, we all have a vein about right here. That when you, when you get on our nerves, it starts to pulsate a little bit. And I saw that vein rise up in my dad that night. And I says, but daddy, you don't understand. All I want to do is know. I just want to know if you're saved or not. Well, we battled back and forth. And I was just about to give up. And I remember going into the living room. And I'm looking at the television. It's getting late. Maybe it's time to give up. And I saw something out of the corner of my eye that I'd never seen before. My dad had hit his knees, and he was weeping profusely at the end of our couch in our living room floor. Man, I got over there as fast as I could, and I got out my little green Gideon New Testament. It was my soul-winning Bible. And I says, Daddy, what is it? He says, Son, you're right. I, I, I need Jesus. Those were the sweetest words that I'd ever heard. My dad, who is my coach, my mentor, loved my mama, raised my baby sister and I right, all of the above. But he says, I need Jesus. So I began to open up that little Bible and says, Daddy, the Bible says, for all of sin and come short of the glory of God. Do, do you understand that? And he says, yeah, I do, I do. 
I said, today the Bible says, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Do you understand what I'm saying? He says, I do. I said, today the Bible says, but God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Do you, do you understand what I'm saying? He says, I do. I said, well, Daddy, you need to understand this, that if you'll confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Daddy, are you ready to be saved? He says, I am. Oh, it was wonderful. Got to lead my dad to Christ. We go in there and we tell my mom. My mom gets excited. Then I looked at my little introverted daddy. Now, my mom was an extrovert. I took most of my... DNA from the rig side of the family that will talk to a wall and will talk back to us eventually, okay? But the car wild side of the family is somewhat introverted. I says, Daddy, you're already as saved as you're ever going to be, but your first act of obedience, you need to be baptized. He said, when can we do it? I said, how about next Sunday night? I hadn't even asked anybody. I didn't even know the protocol. But we filled up that baptistry and we got ready for that baptism. We're standing in the back to change. My dad's putting on his robe. I'm putting on my robe. We're getting all excited. My dad looks at me, and he, he just has this terrified look on his face. He says, son, you know, I, I, I can't control my emotions since I got saved. And I said, yes, sir. Mama says you cry a lot now, you big old baby. But anyway, I says, daddy, I'm, I'm thrilled. That lets me know this was real. This, this, something has happened inside of you. He said, well, do me a favor. When you get me in the baptistry, just... Just do what you do and don't say anything because if you start telling the story again, I'm going to start crying. I said, okay, Daddy. Well, I lied. Man, I had to tell the story again. And sure enough, my dad started weeping and he laid his head on my shoulder. Boy, I got my dad a big old bear hug and the Holy Spirit whispered and said, the man who held you when you were born, I'll let you hold him as he's been born again. I remember stepping back and saying, Bobby Carwile, by your professional faith in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, I baptize you, my brother, my daddy, in the name of the Father and of the Son, Jesus Christ, and of the Holy Spirit. And then I took my dad down into the water, and I remembered every whooping that he had ever given me. <laughs> I made him bubble, amen. <laughs> Raised in the newness of life, brought my dad out of the water, and it was a glory, hallelujah, shouting time. And the biggest shouter of all was that woman sitting on the front row, my mom, who had prayed for my daddy for 25 years. Yeah, there are things that hell has that the church needs, and one of them is concern. Tonight, would we be concerned about those we invited but are not at revival tonight? But we're going to get on the phone tonight when we get home, or we're going to get on a text, and we're going to make sure that they know you need to come and hear this crazy guy from Athens, Alabama, on Monday night. You need to come and hear what he is going to share through God's word. You're going to do whatever it takes because you're going to have some legitimate concern. But see, the story with my dad doesn't end there. After we get back into the baptistry changing area, we put our clothes back on. My dad was joining my first church by baptism. I said, before we leave tonight, does anybody have a word of testimony? Anybody need to share anything? My dad just taps me on the shoulder and says, can I say something? Now, I knew this was going to be a God thing because there's no way that my dad would speak in front of that many people jam-packed into that little sanctuary. He looks at my mom and says, Gail, thank you for not giving up on me because you didn't give up. I get to go to heaven now. 
Thank you, Gail. He looks at my baby sister and says, Kim, I'm so sorry I was always Joel's coach, but I didn't get to coach you. My baby sister sort of nods her head and says, it's okay, Dad. Then my dad looks at me and he turns his attention and he says, I had no idea that on April the 28th, 1964, when they brought you out and put you into my arms, that one day you would tell me about Jesus. We have no idea that who we're pouring into right now might one day lead somebody we love to Jesus. That's why young men and young ladies... We need to make the investment. We need to coach them. We need to mentor them. We need to raise them up for such a time as this. Because, yes, there are things that hell has that the church needs. Now, let me close this out in these last three verses, verse 29 through 31. Well, Abraham said to him, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he says, no, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead... They will repent. But he said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. There's going to be individuals who will hear this message tonight, who heard your pastor preach this morning, who have heard a thousand and one sermons. They've heard Moses. They've heard the prophets. But they won't be persuaded. Some of you in this room got lost family members. They need to be here this week. Beg or borrow, get them here. I don't care what it takes. Let us make the effort with fire in our belly. Like Jeremiah, let's have a fire that is shut up in our bones and we get a case of the cane help it and we'll do whatever it takes to bring them to be under the sound of the gospel. Because I have People who are introverts in my family, some people are just not adept. Some people are not skilled. Some people are not necessarily gifted to be able to share this gospel presentation. That's why Romans 10 says, how shall they hear without a preacher? So if you can't take that step of one-on-one conversation, get them under the sound of the gospel somewhere. Put a CD in their hand. Get them to watch online, watch a YouTube video, whatever it takes to make sure that they are under the sound of the gospel. Because, friend, as your pastor talked about this morning, heaven is real, but hell is also real. It is a two-sided coin. And we have to be very, very careful in our churches, especially for those of us who are, who are first chair leaders, that yes, we are to talk about heaven and how sweet heaven is and how beautiful heaven must be. But we also need to talk about the wrath of God. Upon sin and the judgment that is to come for those who reject the gospel of Jesus Christ. Pastor Sammy, I'll never forget the first funeral I ever had to do of someone I knew was lost. His little sweet wife who was saved and a member of our church at Bethlehem said, Brother Joel, all I ask you to do is don't lie. I knew what she was saying. Just don't lie. And I was schooled enough in Bible college and seminary, you can't preach anybody into heaven. You just sort of preach the gospel. Try to comfort the grieving family, but preach the gospel. This old boy had a bad, bad life, bad choices, bad decisions, sold drugs. He actually died from a heroin overdose. 
We got to the house about 3 o'clock in the morning with a needle still stuck in his arm in the bathroom, waiting for the coroner to show up at the house. I'll never forget walking out of Gallup Funeral Home that's now Hazel Green Funeral Home. And I would usually sometimes when I would walk out of that side door at the funeral home, I would go out to the hearse and I would open the door to the hearse and stand there while they load the body. I did that that day. And after they loaded the body and brothers and cousins that had been the pallbearers stepped away, they closed the door and I'm just sort of standing there waiting to get into my automobile to do the funeral procession. This person that I'd never seen before, never seen since, come up to me and said, listen, you don't know me, but I'm from Huntsville. I used to buy drugs from that boy that's laying in that box. I just wanted to see if there was some preacher that had enough guts to tell the truth. He walks away. People want the truth. They don't want it sugar-coated. They want us to say, this is what the Bible says. And tonight, friend, if you are truly born again, now hear what I'm saying. I'm not talking about religious. Religious people die and go to hell every day. I'm talking about people who have a relationship with Jesus Christ, that you've repented of your sin, you have believed in the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. The Bible says that you are saved. You are now filled with the Holy Spirit. Therefore, your behavior will change and you will live like Christ or Christ-like. I'm not going to say you're perfect, but I will say that when you do something that you should not do, you will be convicted by the Holy Spirit not to do it again. That is the witness of the Spirit in our lives. I just recently had a conversation with an old boy at church, and I looked at him and I said, Brother, your behavior's not changed. You tell me you're saved, but your behavior's not changed. As a dog returns to the vomit, you keep doing the same things. May I ask you, have you truly been saved? Well, I don't know. I, I think so. I How about let's know so? So we got in the floor in my study, and he gave his life to Christ. And prayerfully since that moment, since that time, Holy Spirit now convicts him when he does what he does or says what he says. Tonight, friend, I want you to look in your own heart tonight. Don't worry about everybody else in front of you, besides you, behind you. But I want you, you and Jesus, just to have a little conversation. Lord, am I where I'm supposed to be? Can revival truly break out in my life? If I've got a lost daddy, am I being Christ-like in front of him? If my mother is lost, am I Christ-like in front of her? If my kids are lost, am I Christ-like in front of them? So that they could look at me and say, that's what a follower of Jesus is. Therefore, that's what I desire to be as well. Would you and I be willing to say such things? To accept the challenge of holiness and purity and godliness that this book talks about. Oh yeah, there's seven things that hell has. That not only the church needs, but I need it and you need it. And tonight, we need him. I want you to bow your heads with me. You've been so gracious. We're going to sing in just a moment. And as we sing this evening, my prayer is the Holy Spirit will lay somebody on your heart that we can pray for. When I was a little boy going to Shanghai Baptist Church, my mother would go to that altar almost every Sunday. 
And then after I got saved, I would go with her because you know who we were praying for? My dad, who I eventually got to lead to Christ. Some of you have been waiting a long time for your husband. You've been waiting a long time for your wife. You've been waiting a long time for your kids. Don't you dare give up. God's got a beautiful plan. And let that plan play out through you as we are the hands and feet of Jesus in this community over these next few days. As we move forward in faith, as we do it God's way, not our own. Would we trust Him tonight? Vision, tears, fire, remembrance, separation, prayer, concern. The rich man found himself in hell and he says, I got five brothers. Please send someone to them that they would not have to come to this terrible, horrible place. Father, I'm asking you to do something tonight that only you can do. I'm trusting you to do something tonight, Father, that only you can do. All pastor and I are the messenger boys. We are nothing but beggars telling the other beggars where to go get some bread. So Father, would you have your will and your way done in this place in these few moments together. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Would you stand with us? Let's worship. You know the song. Just as I